My name is Chad Donahoe, one of the pastors here at Grace. And I invite you at this time to turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. What I'll be preaching on this morning is faith, hope, and love. I actually preached on this here about 10 years ago, but in the last few days, uh, pretty much completely revamped this sermon. So with that, let's pray for our time in the Word together. So Father, we, we thank you that... Um, for this time of gathering together as your people. And I do pray that you would meet with us powerfully through your word, that you would encourage us how we need to be encouraged. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Strengthen us to walk in your ways as your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. In Romans chapter five, verses one through five, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So where I want to focus this morning is this trio, these three words, faith, hope, and love. And in our home, we have these words on display Years ago, my wife and I bought um, plaques, faith, hope, and love, and we put them in the dead space above our cabinets to put on display. But the truth of the matter is, these words are not just intended to be decor, right? Fancy word for decoration. Um, they are meant to be displayed in our lives. These are words of discipleship. And throughout the scriptures, we find that these three words, faith, hope, and love, are, to, are clustered together at least 11 times. And I'll, I'll run through the passages, not only in Romans 5, but also in 1 Corinthians 13, in Galatians 5, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 5, 1 Peter twice in, in chapter 1, in Hebrews chapter 6, and in Hebrews chapter 10. So various New Testament authors use this trio of faith, hope, and love, and this is no coincidence because the reason these words are clustered together is that they are foundational to the Christian life. These are fruits of the gospel, and when we think gospel, we think the reality that Jesus died for sinners to give sinners a new life, and that new life is to be characterized by faith, hope, and love. And as we understand from our culture around us, if you haven't noticed, uh, faith, hope, and love can be sorely lacking. Rather than faith, oftentimes fear. Rather than hope, it's despair. Rather than love, well, it's not love, right? We see it in the world around us, 
But the question is, do we see it here? Do we see it in our own lives? Of how we might give in to fear, to despair, to hate? And then do we see the way this could play out, faith, hope, and love within our congregation of how do we how do we do this together, faith, hope, and love, and then how do we carry this out into the world around us? Or are we getting so caught up in our cultural moment that we fail to be people of faith, hope, and love? I love this uh, quote I came across in the book, Uncommon Ground. Uh, living Faithfully in a World of Difference. It was put out in 2020 by Tim Keller and John Anuzo. Um, and they write this. If our culture cannot form people who can speak with both conviction and empathy across deep differences, and deep differences think pandemic, various views, pandemic, race, politics, right? If our culture cannot form people who, who can speak with great conviction and empathy across deep differences, then it becomes even more important for the church to use its theological and spiritual resources to produce such people. The Christian calling is to be shaped and reshaped into people whose every thought and action is characterized by faith, hope, and love. And they go on to write, and then to take that out into the world around us. And so here's really the point of the sermon. Because God has given us the gift of faith, hope, and love, he calls us to live it out, that our lives would be characterized by faith, hope, and love, that we as the church would put faith, hope, and love on display around us. So this morning, um, I want to take up faith, hope, and love, but I'm going to concentrate mostly on faith, and hope. So if we get to about the 30-minute mark and I haven't mentioned love, it's all right. I have a plan. So with faith. So we cannot get caught up, as we think about biblical faith, we cannot get caught up um, with faith according to, at times, the world's definition. Oftentimes, when the word faith is used or the concept of it, there can be words that are inserted before it. Now, it may not, uh, it may not be articulated, um, but the words are often, faith is blind faith, or a leap of faith, or you just got to have faith, right? And the, and the concept there, the assumption of this faulty view of faith is faith is just something that we muster up out of thin air. Or as one very popular movie put it years ago, faith is the belief in something for which we have no evidence. Well... But doesn't the Bible say that we live by faith, not by sight? Yes, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And doesn't that suggest a blind faith? No. But that is a common assumption. In fact, I fell into this assumption, uh, this assumption when I was back in college. So I want to tell a quick story about that. And I would say, kids, don't try this at home. And adults, uh, don't mock me too harshly. It was summer. Uh, I was uh, in my college, uh, in my college years. I went on a summer project with crew to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And I was just beginning at that stage of my life to get really excited about my faith. And so I had this thought, according to uh, we walk by faith, not by sight. I had this crazy good idea. 
that I was actually going to really live this out. In fact, I was going to run by faith, not by sight. Literally, I made this decision that I was going to blindfold myself and run a mile on the beach so that I could be led by God to run by faith and not by sight. And I remember telling my friends about this. My, my friend, you know, we were all like super spiritual. Like they're like, yeah, that'll teach you to walk by faith. Um, but no, it was a really foolish idea. Thankfully, I bailed on it because that wouldn't have taught me to run by faith or walk by faith. It just would have got me injured or wet, right? When the scriptures talk about walk by faith, not by sight, it's not referring to a blind faith or a leap of faith. It's not about blindfolding ourselves, so to speak, and walking blindly and believing the unbelievable. It's actually about walking with confidence into whatever is before us, even though we do not know how it's going to play out, because of our confidence of what God has done in the past. So biblical faith is not blindfolded faith moving forward. Biblical faith focuses us backwards. The root word of faith is this idea of trust, Biblical faith is about trusting God based on his character, his promises, his actions in the past. So our faith is not a blind faith like believing in unicorns or Bigfoot, but is rooted in actual history in a God who has proven himself to be faithful to his people. And how do we know that God is faithful? How do we know that he is trustworthy? Well, we could say it in one word. It's the word that comes to your mind. Maybe Jesus. That would be correct, but not the word I'm looking for. The word would be covenant. Covenant. When the Bible uses the covenant, when I think of this, I think covenant is promise on steroids. Okay? So when the Bible uses this word covenant, we could summarize it this way, or the Bible summarizes it, actually. I will be your God, and you will be my people. At least 25 times in the scripture, that phrase is repeated. I will be your God, meaning I will be faithful to you. And you will be my people, meaning I will secure you. It's a glorious promise in the scriptures. And throughout the Old Testament, God establishes his covenant with his people, with one person, a mediator, who would represent the people. So we have Adam and then Noah and Abraham, Moses and David. Okay, so throughout the Old Testament, God makes these significant promises that he will bless and protect his people through covenants. And all of these covenants build towards this glorious hope. And if I can just summarize the covenants this way, that God will crush Satan, covenant with Adam. That God will preserve his people, covenant with Noah that God will lead his people to the promises, to the promised land, covenant with Abraham, that God will deliver his people out from oppression, covenant with Moses, and God will lead his people by a king, covenant with David. But the problem with all these covenants is that God's people failed, but God was always faithful. And in fact, thinking of the faithfulness of God, think about what God did not do in the Old Testament, 
If you notice, God never huddled up the Israelites. He never did this. Hey, Israelites, huddle up. Um, so here's what's going to happen. You're about to be chased by Pharaoh's army. And then later on throughout your lives, you're going to be surrounded by all these nations who have given themselves over to a foreign God, and they want to destroy you. So have faith in yourself. Good luck. We're all counting on you. Uh, hope for the best. You know, use the force, right? None of that. No, what God did for his people is he pledged himself to his people with this promise. I will be your God. I will be faithful. You will be my people. You will be secure. Over and over we see that in the scriptures. But again, God's people failed over and over. But there was one more glorious covenant. Jeremiah 31, where God says, Behold, I will establish a new covenant. And this new covenant, God promises, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. All the covenants pointed to this glorious new covenant. And it's new because it goes well beyond the others. And what the new covenant is all about is Jesus. God himself will take on flesh. God himself will take on the curse of the broken covenant by way of the cross. And he will set his people free from the curse of sin and death. So Jesus is, we could say it this way, Jesus is the faithful Adam who crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus is the faithful Noah who endured the flood of God's wrath for his people. Jesus is the faithful Abraham who will lead a multitude from every tongue and tribe and nation to the promised land of the new heavens and new earth. Jesus is the faithful Moses who will deliver his people out of oppression of slavery. Jesus is the faithful David who will reign on an eternal throne forever and ever, securing his people and giving them rest and peace. That is the promise that we find in the scriptures. So biblical faith points to a covenant-keeping God, and most especially to the cross. And what was accomplished at the cross? Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So this is the Apostle Paul saying, we have been justified by faith. This is, he's using a courtroom word, okay? Justified, meaning to be declared righteous. And how are we declared righteous? Is it that our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds and God declares us righteous? No, because the scriptures are clear. Even one sin against a holy God, one breaking of the commandment, earns us punishment. And this is an eternal punishment. But instead, what is our hope of being declared righteous? It is that God himself will step in and deal with our sins. That he will take the punishment and this is the glorious truth we find throughout the scriptures, and we see it clearly in 2 Corinthians 5, that on, our, on the cross, our guilt was transferred to Christ. 
His righteousness transferred to us. Therefore, we are declared righteous. There's this story that I hope is true because I love this story, but I don't know the origin of it. But even if it's not, it still makes the point. There's this story uh, that's been told that there was this drought uh, in a distant land, and the king, therefore, made a decree that um, they were to ration the water during this drought. Okay? And so everybody got the memo and was rationing the water, except one person, the king's own mother. Apparently, she did not hear this command of the king, and she was watering her garden. And so she is then brought before the king, and the king has to make a decision because she is guilty. Does he uphold his own law because he's a righteous king? Does he uphold his own law and punish his mom? with a brutal whipping? Or does he let her go and disregard his law? But because he is a righteous king, he upholds the law and he orders his own mother to be whipped. But because he is a gracious king, when they lay her out to whip her, He takes his own body and he lays it over hers and he receives the punishment and the beating himself because he is a righteous king, but he is also a gracious king. And this is our story. We are the mother, guilty, deserving of punishment, but our king, the righteous and gracious king, took it on himself for us to set us free. So we have been declared righteous because of the cross. And even beyond that, Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is permanent peace. Okay, this is no fear of judgment. This is no fear of wrath for those who are in Christ. And Paul goes on, and through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we stand secure in the grace of God, not because we've earned it, but because Christ earned it for us. So I was thinking about this sermon on Friday. I was at the local gym, and I noticed a couple teenagers working out next to me, and I was thinking about something. So I turned to them, and I said, hey, can I ask you a quick question? Like, yeah, what's up? I said, "Um, hey, so I'm a pastor. I'm preaching a sermon on Sunday. It's going to be about this concept of faith. So let me ask you all this. When you think of the word faith, what comes to your mind? How would you define it? I'm like, oh, they said, uh, faith is belief, like belief in something. And the other one goes, oh, belief in, faith is belief in something bigger than yourself. And then it returned to the first one. He said, yeah, like for me, he said, I have been praying a ton the last three days because I need to pass a drug test. And so I'm listening and, um, and I'm recognizing how true that is. In, in our time of need, in anyone's time of need, we always look to something. The question is, is that something sufficient? But in my quick conversation with these, uh, with these teens, I realized, um, I think if I were to press harder, that the faith they're talking about could probably line up with The faith of the culture has been termed years ago, moralistic therapeutic deism, right? It's that uh, moralistic, God just wants us to be good, 
Therapeutic, God wants us to be happy. And deism, vague understanding of God. Maybe he exists. Maybe he helps us in a time of need. But that's not the God of the scriptures. That's not biblical faith. So for us, what about us? In our times of need, what do we do? Honestly, sometimes we just worry, wondering if God's going to pull through for us, wondering if God's going to make us happy, wondering if we've been good enough to earn God's favor in that moment. And that sounds a lot like moralistic therapeutic deism. But for the Christian, that's not our God and that's not our faith. Instead, we have to train ourselves of the truth that God is not this impersonal God, but our God is a powerful and a personal God, and he has proved it by way of his covenants. Over and over, I will be your God, you will be my people. And he's made good on his promise by way of the cross. And so we rest. We can rest in the fact that we've been justified by grace. And we can rest in the fact that we have access to faith into this grace in which we stand, or by faith into this grace. We rest in this glorious truth. So on one hand, biblical faith helps us to just rest. But also, we must feed our faith as well. And I'm I'm borrowing a line from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. When he writes about faith, he says, faith is the art of holding onto things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. I love that at times our moods shift about God and, and his perspective on us, right? And what we're going through. But God's not changing, but at times we are. Lewis goes on to say this says, one must train the habit of faith. If you have accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That is why daily praying and religious reading and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. So we need to be constantly reminded of the past, the faithfulness of God. We look back in faith. But we also look forward in hope. And this is where faith and hope are linked together. So as we think about hope, again, um, when the world thinks about hope at times, the, the idea is progress. And maybe that progress is through science, or technology, like the next iPhone, or education, or politics. Um, It's a human desire to make this world a utopia. And don't get me wrong, progress in a lot of those areas can be a really good thing and, and worthy of human endeavor, but it is not our hope. It is not our hope. Our hope is this, Romans 5, verse 2. And we rejoice could say we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's our hope. It's the glory of God. The glory of God is God's manifest presence. It's his light, his his radiance, his brightness. 
that gives life and overcomes darkness. The focus of biblical hope is the advancement of the kingdom of God and the certain hope of the glory of God as we especially look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no darkness. So some of the passages of when faith, hope, and love, uh, some of these passages as they speak of hope, it's always about this glory of God, but it's articulated in various ways. For instance, uh, Galatians 5 talks about the hope of righteousness, meaning perfect righteousness. In Colossians 1, it's the hope laid up for you in heaven. 1 Peter 1, it's the hope of an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So, we rejoice in the promise of this full and complete salvation, that a day will come when Jesus will return, and everything will be perfectly glorious. No fear, no despair, no hate. Then verses 3 and 4. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Okay, let's be honest here. This probably is not our favorite verse in the Bible. But it's here, and it's true. We rejoice, not because we like to suffer, but because we trust by faith and in hope of God's work, that he is at work in the midst of our lives, in the midst of suffering. And Paul says suffering produces endurance. And until hardship comes, we don't experience the extent and the depth of God's grace and our reliance on Christ until we suffer a little bit and see God's faithfulness in our lives. And then our faith grows, we're strengthened. And then he says, endurance produces character. And this comes about when we are tested and refined. We can think of Job when he said in Job 23, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And then character produces hope. Character produces hope. The, most, the people who are most unwavering in their hope are those who have been tested most deeply and recognize the very presence, the very faithfulness of God. So what do we do with tragedy and suffering in our world, and what do we do it in our own lives? It all comes down to perspective. What came to mind is this quote that I love, and it's this. The devil laughs because God's world seems senseless to him, but the angels laugh with joy because everything in God's world has its meaning. Angels laugh with joy because everything has its meaning. We are called to be people of faith, hope, and love. We look back in faith at God's character, his promises, his actions. He has been faithful. We look forward in hope that he will continue to be faithful. Okay, so we look back and we look forward. Or maybe another way to think through this, uh, the picture I have in my mind is, is we also, maybe we put it this way, we live between two mountains in the scriptures. On the one hand, we look back to Mount Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, and why would we look back there? That's the place that Jesus took his disciples 
after his work on this earth was finished, after the cross, 40 days after the resurrection, takes his disciples to, the, to Mount Olivet. And it's from there that Jesus ascends in front of them to the right hand of the Father to continue his work of making intercession, of praying for his people. And he left them with this promise that he would send this helper, this Holy Spirit, so that God would be with them, that Jesus would be with them, present through the power of the Holy Spirit. And with this promise to his disciples, that I will never leave you nor forsake you, that I'm with you till the end of the age. That's Mount Olivet, we look back. But also, Jesus promised that he would return. And this brings into focus this glorious Mount Zion in the scriptures. Mount Zion is the heavenly mountain. It comes into focus as we think about the consummation, the kaboom when Jesus returns. Revelation 21 speaks of this high mountain, Mount Zion, where God will dwell with man again, but it'll be better than Eden. No tears, no death, no pain. Instead, only the glory of God, the radiance, we could say, or it's, it, we say because Scripture says it. Revelation says the radiance, like a most rare jewel, eternal peace and rest. So we live between the times. Christ has come, he is coming again. We live between the mountains, the mountain of Jesus' first coming, his work, his ascension, and the return, that glorious Mount Zion. But in the midst, in between these two mountains, where are we? We're in the wilderness. The wilderness in the scripture is the place of trials. It's the place of temptation. It's the place of testing. It's the place where God calls his people to be faithful, but it is also the place where God pledges himself to be faithful to his people. There's this great line in Deuteronomy 29.5 when Moses is reminding God's people, the Israelites, of his faithfulness to the Israelites in their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Moses reminds them that their sandals never wore out, that he preserved them. And I'll bet, and the scriptures give us indication, I bet they grumbled all the time, all the time. And I wonder, did they neglect at times to look down at their feet and be like, wow, it's been 30 years and my kicks are still working? I don't know. But for us, there's this great promise. And if I can just, yeah, the promise is this, that our shoes aren't going to wear out, that we'll get there, that we live in between the mountains. But God will get us there to the glorious Mount Zion. And we're not alone in the wilderness. God is with us. He has given us the helper, the Holy Spirit who is with us. And he's given us his promises. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so where does that leave us in the wilderness? No matter what comes our way, whatever suffering, and it could be suffering by way of relationships, suffering by way of health, suffering by way of job, circumstances, suffering by way of finances, whatever the suffering may be, and including suffering by way of death, losing those so dearly loved. We look back in faith 
we look forward in hope, resting in the promise that he is with us and will not forsake us. So how are we doing? How are we doing in the midst of suffering and the trials? When things go poorly, is there rest and comfort in the grace and the comfort of God? Or do we forget grace? Do we complain? Do we become self-absorbed? Do we, uh, are we critical of God and others? Do we give ourselves to the fear and the despair and the hate? A reminder, God has purpose in the suffering. It is to bring about patient endurance of his people and building godly character and intensifying our hope of eternity. And along these lines, just I love the perspective um, as we think about faith and hope, the perspective of suffering. It captured well, I think, C.S. Lewis when he said, and they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Okay. So now we come to love, and this will be quick. Romans 5, 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. See, faith and hope are anchored in God's love. Anchored in God's love. Out of God's love, we look back in faith that his love is true, and we look forward in hope that his love is true, right? We're anchored. In, in fact, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And when faith, hope, and love are mentioned together, sometimes the focus is on God's love for us, and sometimes the focus is on our love for one another. It's both. It's because it's rooted in God's command to his disciples when he said to them, just as I have loved you, so that you are to love one another. And how did God love us? We have a picture of it. Again, think of the wilderness. Think of the mountains. Between Mount Olivet and Mount Zion, and we live in this wilderness. But you know what's in the wilderness with us? It's a table. It's a table that reminds us of the faithfulness of God. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And giving thanks, he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, gave this to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so what do we proclaim? We proclaim that in faith we look back at his faithfulness. In hope we look forward 
at his faithfulness. What we declare is that his promise is true. He will never leave us. and He will, he, he will never forsake us. That he will be our God. We will be his people. And let's pray together. So Lord, we ask that you meet us at this table in a way that strengthens our our faith. Grow us in the knowledge of your glorious grace. Give us a hope that will sustain us. So we pray that you would take this bread and this juice, set it apart in such a way that we know that you are truly with us. And may you be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.